My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. I'm approaching a significant birthday, and as I do, I find myself asking what I want to do with the final third of my adult life. I could stay in my comfort zone being an ideas entrepreneur, an organisational leader, but that's not very adventurous. And anyway, how long till I fall off the pace? What about the me I could be? Perhaps giving more back, not through lofty thought leadership, but concrete, practical care and help to real people. Or maybe even finding some deeply hidden talent for art or craft. So given my preoccupations, I was delighted to have the opportunity to read a new book, Head, Hand and Heart, by the writer and all-round public intellectual David Goodhart. David, how are you? I'm not too bad, considering. I'm one of the lucky people in the pandemic for all sorts of different reasons, but it does get to you. But still, I'm bearing up. But I sense that you're also doing some of the kind of thinking that I've just described. And we'll get into that in a minute, because there's some personal touches to this book that I found fascinating. But before we get into that, David, I have to ask you the question we ask everybody on this podcast. David Goodhart, what's your big idea for the post-COVID world? I think my big idea is that we need to manage a shift in status and prestige in relation to the human aptitudes that we value. My thesis is kind of in the book title you just described, Head, Hand, Heart, that particularly in the last 30 or 40 years, in some ways this is something that goes back thousands of years, but particularly in the last 30 or 40 years, we have allocated a huge amount of reward and prestige to just one cluster of aptitude, the kind of cognitive analytical intelligence, which is incredibly important, possibly more important than ever. But we've also drawn away prestige and reward to lots of other kinds of occupations that going back not that far gave people a sense of purpose and a feeling that they were contributing in a way I think that has been diminished in recent times you know the creation of mass higher education the the feeling that what it is to lead a successful life is to do well at school go to a more or less good university have a more or less successful professional career and that everybody else is kind of seen in relation to that these days. And there are lots of people who either can't or don't want to go down that path. And also there is just one path now. I think, again, if you go back not too many decades, there were lots of little ladders up, and there there were lots of different ways of living a successful life. And obviously that is still true to some extent. I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but there has been this huge shift, and I think we need to think about how, how we shift towards a different kind of distribution. And I think the pandemic will play some small role in that. I mean, we were clapping not just the doctors and nurses, we were also clapping the people that maintain the kind of hidden wiring of everyday life, doing pretty basic jobs, some of them pretty poorly paid, 
But we became aware. They became visible to us for the first time often. You know, you became aware of the people that were stacking shelves in your local supermarket because they were suddenly bloody important. You know, and the people that drive the vans and do all those basic things. And of course, a lot of the so-called key workers were non-college educated people. And I think, you know, perhaps placing the manipulation of information and data in a kind of broader context. But people who manipulate information data remain very important in all sorts of ways. But we've got things out of kilter. And I think the pandemic may be an opportunity to get things back into kilter, particularly if you remember the extraordinary radical things that we've kind of been forced to do. I mean, the the collective underwriting of the wages of millions and millions of people. I mean, a few months ago, people would have thought that's just a ridiculous idea. But it happened. You know, if we can do that, then perhaps we can. And this isn't something that is easily in the power of politicians to deliver either. I mean, these are kind of fuzzy and hard to measure things. And although status to some extent follows the money and politicians have some oversight over the distribution of that, but it's something that it kind of requires almost a sort of change of tune of whole populations. So David, normally I ask people who come on the programme have written a book to tell us where the book originated from before they tell us the idea. But I want to do it in the reverse order for you because it's fascinating to me that you have written this book but you are the kind of person who you think, in a sense, has too high a status, or you have walked the path that you think that too many people are asked to walk. So tell me where the idea of the book came from. I mean, in a way, this is my kind of road to somewhere part two. I mean, I wrote a book three and a half years ago, which was more about the value divides in societies in Britain and societies like Britain that had kind of led to the mass political alienation that we saw expressed in Brexit and Trump and so on. And I think, you know, this is an attempt, there was a chapter in that book that was about the kind of dark side of the achievement society of meritocracy, of the cognitive meritocracy, if you like. And this book sort of buries deeper into that strand of the argument. I think the question this book is also trying to answer is, why is it that so many people feel pissed off about modern societies that in so many other respects seem very, very successful and you know, never have people with the old blip, never have people been better off, healthier, living longer and so on. But there is a sort of a feeling that things are sort of not quite right. And I think that has to do with purpose, contribution, meaning, these kind of quite emotional notions that don't fit in easily to rational utilitarian political calculation or indeed modern economics that's been so dominant. And we need to find ways of talking about things and perhaps even trying to measure these kinds of things more than we have done. But, you know, I mean, in the language of my previous book, you know, I'm in an anywhere, I mean, possibly rather an extreme anywhere. <laughs> but that didn't prevent me writing a book that had a fair amount of sympathy for the somewheres too. You know, you don't have to be the thing that you're writing about, otherwise very few things would get written, at least in, you know, in political science and sociology. So help us understand this head, hand, heart distinction a bit better. I mean, I do understand it because I've read the book, but I want our listeners to understand. So, I mean, I remember many years ago, I went to a lecture at the Royal Institution by a, an evolutionary neuroscientist, and there were some people in the audience who were evolutionists, kind of right reductive into evolutionists, and they were talking about phantom limb syndrome. And I remember one of them said to the lecturer, what's the evolutionary purpose of phantom limb syndrome? And the guy was trying to explain, well, it hasn't got an evolutionary purpose, it's just a kind of byproduct. And Jonathan Miller was sitting at the back, and in impatience, I remember him shouting out, listen, he said, all limbs are phantom limbs. It's just that some have got real limbs in them. And the reason I'm telling that story is because everything's head, isn't it? I mean, when you talk about this distinction between head, hand and heart, 
you know, if I'm playing music, I'm using my head. My head is the thing that drives everything. So help us understand the distinction more. I mean, it's something I do say in the book, although I probably should have said it more. I mean, it's a reasonable criticism in some ways. Of course, these are abstractions. Of course, every action, you know, us talking now is a combination of, you know, the, the kind of cognitive, the emotional, the embodied, everything we do, every human action is a combination of those things. Obviously, they're all hugely interrelated. But that doesn't mean to say that there are not you know, looking at occupations There are occupations that draw more on some of these human actions, skills, than other occupations which draw on different ones. So, I mean, I think it's a reasonable abstraction to make, but it is an abstraction. Obviously, they're all completely overlapping and interrelated. And indeed, I think many of the most satisfying kinds of jobs you know, have a kind of combination of, of at least two, if not all three, very powerfully built into them. So heart, as I understand it, is at the centre of heart. This isn't the only part of what you mean by heart, but is caring and the caring occupations. And you have a chapter largely dedicated to trying to understand the challenges of care and the lotus status of care. And of course, I interviewed Madeline Bunting, who you quote quite a few times in the book on her book a few weeks ago. And hand is, in a sense, at the heart of that is some notion of materiality, that we're, we're dealing with some kind of resistant material in some way, that there's an interaction between the person and an object outside them. And head is this, more is this kind of notion of abstract reasoning. Is that right? Is that the heart of the three ideas? I think that's a fair summary. I mean, I think care, you kind of immediately sort of have an image of a kind of woman, a nurse, a female nurse. But I mean, it's much broader than that. I think, I mean, it's sort of everything that one might put under the category of kind of emotional intelligence, and which could include a lot of managerial jobs that are partly or even substantially heart, kind of care, nurture, very often, both in healthcare and education, these will be kind of face-to-face things. And similarly, as you say, with hand, this can be the you know, most basic manual occupations. It can be craft. It can be highly skilled. Where there is something more material than the cognitive jobs, which are you know more to do with thought and manipulation of data and information in different ways. Actually, just to go back to the point earlier, you were sort of talking about, in some ways, me being a kind of unlikely person to write a book, which is advocating that we sort of shift status to some extent away from head towards hand and heart. I mean, I don't want to be sort of stupidly naive about this. And I balk slightly at the notion of, you know, when we talk about you know, raising the status of FE colleges or you know, level four, five sort of technician type qualifications, which I'm all for, by the way. But this, I think, rather naive idea of equality of esteem I mean, at some basic level, there isn't and shouldn't even be equality of esteem. I mean, there are people who are have highly intelligent and extremely creative, people who produce new knowledge. People who produce new knowledge do kind of live in a category of their own. But I guess my argument is that there aren't that many people who create new knowledge, but we've created a huge sort of cognitive bureaucracy, partly through the massification of higher education. Many of those people are no more able than the people who are not going to university, who are doing hand or heart jobs. But they sort of benefit, they almost sort of piggyback on the prestige associated with high intelligence and creation of new knowledge. You know, we need incredibly intelligent people to produce new knowledge as never before. We've dug ourselves various holes as a species. You know, we need teams of very clever people to, you know, discover a vaccine for COVID to work out how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and all sorts of other things like that. So, I mean, you know, this is not a book that is hostile to high intelligence, but it's the way that, as I say, a whole 
sort of substrata of people, many of whom are doing actually pretty basic administrative jobs. Indeed, this is one of the problems. I mean, this is my concept of peak head. There was a rationale to expanding higher education for 20 or 30 years after the 60s, the development of the knowledge economy, the huge expansion of professional occupations, perhaps particularly public sector professional occupations, more teachers, university lecturers, hospital consultants, and so on and so forth, all the professions related to medicine. There was a huge surge in demand for these, and it made sense to hugely expand higher education. That period has now come to an end. I mean, even before AI comes along and hugely reduces the number of jobs in the kind of more routine, middling and lower levels of the cognitive class. Even before that, and that is coming, even before that, we can see it through things like the collapse in the graduate income premium. We can see it in the fact that what about a third of graduates are not in graduate employment five to ten years after graduating. And, you know, if you look at the, if you take the standard, I think it's the standard ONS sort of social class schema, and you look at the, the top two social classes, essentially professional and managerial, higher and lower, a surprisingly large proportion of the population are in that category. I mean, it was 35% in 2000. It is now barely 37%. So that there is no longer a big expansion of that group. And as I say, AI is going to come along and possibly reduce even further. Meanwhile, we have huge skill shortages in a lot of middling technical occupations. We have huge uh, recruitment crises in the public care economy. As I say, it's all part of that getting out of kilter <laughs> that I was talking about earlier. Yes, and like all kind of persuasive arguments, you meld in your book what you think should be with what you think will be. So you think that we should have a more balanced approach to the qualities that come with work based on care and materiality and abstract thought, but you also warn I guess people like me who may be assuming that the best possible prospect for their children is to go to university and to follow in my footsteps, that this will no longer be an expanding class. And that, as you say, we've reached this point that you describe as peak ed. And the other thing that you've you've got interestingly going on, it seems to me in the book, David, is you've got on the one hand, this kind of big message, which is that we need to reconsider our values and the framework of our values. And that in certain ways, as a society, our values are corroding us. And that's partly around kind of rather harsh notions of meritocracy, which aren't even an accurate description of how the world is or undervaluing of care. But then you also want to make some very specific proposals about some of the things that we might need to do if we were going to address this. And they're largely in the final part of the book. Give us some examples of some of the practical things that one might want to do if one wanted to address this imbalance and one wanted to help people understand that the cognitive class is just not going to carry on growing. Yeah, I mean, when I started writing the book, I did feel it was sort of quite an idealistic book in some ways, and even slightly new agey. I mean, the notion of kind of head, hand, heart. I also discovered that it turns out that head, hand and heart is the motto of Beedale's school, <laughs> the progressive private school. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I mean, like a lot of these books, I mean, this is mainly a sort of diagnosis book. I mean, I do have a few policy ideas at the end, because I think, you know, if you've made these claims, you ought to sort of come up with one or two things. It's not, I wouldn't say, the strongest part of the book. But one thing that I'm interested in and, and propose or kind of hold up to the light is this whole question of the gendered notion of care and you know, one of the reasons why we have a crisis of recruitment in nursing in adult social care, the latter is more understandable, perhaps, because it's so 
poorly paid. So nursing is not particularly poorly paid. And indeed, you now have to be a graduate to be a nurse. And yet, there's still a recruitment crisis. I mean, that is partly for the benign reason that women now have so many more opportunities than they did in our mother's generation. So part of the issue here, I think, is encouraging more men to enter these traditionally female occupations. I think we've been much better at doing it the other way around, encouraging women to move into traditionally male occupations. And I think we, we need to give more thought. And I think I have one or two recommendations for, you know, a, a kind of positive discrimination in a way. I mean, we need more role models, male role models in these caring jobs. I mean, you know, 88% of NHS nurses are female. And that 12% figure for men has not risen i think it's risen one percentage point since 2000 or something of course i mean just just in parentheses there is a slight problem here too is that men in nursing are disproportionately found at the very highest levels of nursing which then causes female nurses to be somewhat pissed off but actually the more male nurses you have the more you kind of dilute that problem i think in a way um, and i think you know we concentrate investment we hideously over concentrate investment in academic higher education in 18, 19-year-olds who go from school to university is becoming just an automatic rite of passage for most of middle class and often middle class Britain and in other advanced countries too. And it's just such a waste in so many cases because people are not mature enough or indeed really academically or intellectually curious enough to take advantage of it at that stage. Far better to spread it out more over a lifetime. I mean, far better to, you know, if you're an 18-year-old who doesn't particularly know what they want to do, far better to go and do a coding course or whatever and you you can earn some pretty good money and you know you work for some small digital startup you know you have a perfectly nice time and then you know if you are intellectually curious and you want to know kind of what lies behind what you're doing every day you know go and do a computer science degree you know in your mid or late 20s and you you'll get so much more out of it you know and you can then sort of you know move up the scale in tech to what extent, David, is this? I, I spoke to John Kampfner a few weeks ago about his book about how much we could learn from the Germans. And is this another example of this? That on the one hand, of course, their apprentice system, which means that more hand tasks have higher status. But also, actually, this is a Swedish example, but I had an au pair a few years ago. She went off to become an estate agent. So I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, you know, when will you start work? And she said, well, it's a four-year degree. The idea you have to do a four-year degree to be an estate agent, I think in this country, you can just rock up and start the next day. <laughs> so, I mean, this is flying in the face, of course, of our much beloved, highly flexible British labour market, but is part of the solution here that we just need to say, if you want to be, you know, a plumber or a state agent or anything like this, you're going to have to get better qualifications. And that's part of the process of raising the status of these tasks and also, you know, potentially enabling them to, to command slightly higher market value. That's a very good point. And I think, I mean, I, I know Germany too. I worked there for three years for the FT. And I am an admirer of Germany. I don't think it's easy to transport their institutions here. But it's undoubtedly the case that quite a few of the things I'm talking about, particularly the kind of the lower status of manual, even skilled manual work, this is somewhat less of an issue in the Germanic countries and the Scandinavian countries where they have, you know, 50% of school leavers in Germany still go straight into, you know, usually pretty, pretty high level apprenticeships, two and a half, three years, you know, so some of them requiring some, you know, pretty high level of skill. And it's pretty well all classes as well. I mean, they're, you know, kind of middle class, even upper middle class German kids 
don't think twice about doing an apprenticeship if they're not particularly academically inclined, or even if they just don't know what they want to do. You know, again, at age 18, you might well do an apprenticeship in Germany, and then you might go to university further down the line. I'm uh, Jens Spahn, who I've met a couple of times, the German health minister, did an apprenticeship, did a bank Kaufmann apprenticeship, a sort of bank salesman apprenticeship when he was young. He then went to university a few years later, and I think he's got a PhD from somewhere. So there's a sense that all of these things are sort of on a somewhat same spectrum. I mean, obviously, a PhD is superior to an apprenticeship, but there's a sense that they're not in kind of different universes. But of course, the reason why that system works in Germany is because entry into so many of the kind of skilled trades professions are highly regulated. You have to have an apprenticeship in order to do the frigging job. Whereas, as you say here, well, the professions still have a lot of that protection, but most ordinary jobs don't. Well, I mean, that's not, I mean, if you want to be an electrician or a plumber, obviously you have to get qualifications. You have to get the HNDs or HNCs or, or whatever the current equivalents are. But you cannot, I mean, the, the German apprenticeship system only works and, and has only been preserved because of a very different kind of labor market. And I think there, you know, there is something to be said for that labor market and perhaps we can, but we're kind of doing it from the top down, because what we're now doing is graduatizing everything. So we're saying, I mean, this is a kind of, I think, in a way, a less good and a kind of hypercognitive version of what they do in Germany. But we're doing it top down through graduatizing. Okay, so nurses have to be graduates. But I mean, there is an argument about that. But it's, you know, there is also a fair amount of evidence that having more graduate nurses is better for health outcomes. But policemen, you know, and I think prison officers are now, you know, there are so many vested interests, because we have this huge higher education sector, very successful in many ways. And it's got to do something. It's got to needs bums on seats. You have all the kind of colleges producing nurses. Of course, they think it's a good idea that all these occupations should become graduate only. But, you know, what about the capable people who are just not very good at exams, you know, who don't get decent enough A-levels to go to university? And mind you, these days you can pretty well get into university without A-levels, but but you're potentially losing a lot of capable people. So I mean I think that the trick there is to combine graduatization and, and it's not a bad thing if more policemen are graduates, but you've got to have a decent door open to non-graduate entry into a lot of these jobs. Otherwise, you just do have this, it's like a sort of ridiculously enlarged version of the kind of 11 plus, you know, you pass your 11 plus, you have this whole realm of graduate occupations open to you, you don't, and you're screwed. So that's a point about kind of social stratification. But there's something else in your book, which appears at various points and goes back to what I said at the very beginning about my kind of late middle age existential angst, which is that it's possible for people to go through their lives without experiencing what you call heart or hand. I mean, when Madeline was on, I said to her, you know, should there be a national caring service? Should every 18-year-old spend six months providing care? Not as a kind of punishment, not even just because we all need their labour, although we do, but because they might find some. I love the story in her book of the guy who'd been an electrician all his life, I think, or a builder, and got bored in retirement, decided to become a carer and absolutely loved it. And it wasn't only that he loved it, but his family said, you know, oh my God, you know, he'd gone from being a grumpy old git to being a, an absolute joy because he suddenly discovered this caring part of him. Equally, you quote another person we've had on this podcast, Matt Crawford, and, you know, and the way in which now, you know, in secondary school, most kids that go through secondary school will never get their hand on a lathe or a hammer or anything. No, they won't have any kind of experience of manual work or of craft, and they may never find out. I mean, I'll give you another example. I was talking, the other day, I was 
on the tube, it was a few months ago, actually, and I came across, John Hutton was there. I remember John Hutton, the cabinet minister. And I said, how are you doing, John? He said, oh. he was up for London for one reason or another. And I said, I said, you know, what are you doing? And I guess I said, what are you doing? Expecting him to reel off the normal list of non-executive directorships and commissions. And, all this. and he said to me, he said, no, he said, I spend a lot of time in the shed at home with my lathe because I do carpentry. And he said it, he said it was such joy I don't know if this is something that he'd always had in his life, but it was fascinating to hear. So part of your story, I think, is the tragedy that we can go through most of our lives and possibly have talents, gifts that we never get any chance to express. No, absolutely. I loved your little intro, and I'm a little bit older than you, but these feelings may be partly sort of our age speaking in some ways, or that feeling that we've we've led too narrow a life in a way. And you asked me for some of my proposals earlier, and actually one that I forgot, one of my proposals was that everybody at secondary school should, as well as all the, you know, the English and the math and so on, everybody should leave school with a physical skill of some kind. You know, there should be at least one proper period a week, possibly away from the school, at the, I don't know, the local FE college or something, where you learn, you know, you can choose, you know, perhaps you can do coding or carpentry or something. You come away with some sort of background of physical skill. Of course, we've been taking that out of the curriculum in the US and the UK. You know, when you and I were at school, we would have had, you know, metalworking and carpentry classes. They've, they've largely disappeared, I think, from, from most schools now. And they should be reinstated. And, you know, right from the beginning, we should have this mix. And art subjects should be taught with the same rigour. You know, art and music are considered, you know, by some educationists as sort of soft subjects. Well, if they are soft subjects, it's partly because they're very badly taught often. But, you know, you go to those really rigorous schools, the Mossbournes and the Michaelas in London, incredibly successful schools. They teach, well, certainly Michaela has an incredible art department because they really teach it as rigorously as they teach maths or biology. So, David, we're nearly out of time. And so I'm going to kind of pose you two kind of challenges in a way that came out of the book. So the first is that you call the book Head, Hand, Heart, but it's got a subtitle. And the subtitle is The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. And it seems to me, David, that taking this book together with your previous book, it seems to me what you're really in search of here is a theory of status justice. But that in a sense, The problem is that status is such a complex topic. So it's as if in both these books and other writing that you've got, that you want to develop a theory of status justice and status inequality as robust as theories of economic justice and economic inequality. But in the end, as you say yourself very honestly in the book, every time you try to kind of grab it, status is so complex and elusive, it runs away from you again. No, I mean, you put your finger on it in a way, and status is inherently hierarchical too. So if one is broadly, you know, I call myself a social democrat, I mean, I like to see a somewhat more equal society than we have. And I think the, you know, in terms of the meritocracy argument, I mean, my book's been reviewed in quite a few places, along with Michael Sandel's recent book, which is a really pretty classical kind of Michael Young critique of meritocracy. My stress is much more on the cognitive part of the phrase, the cognitive meritocracy. It's not so much meritocracy itself. I mean, we will never achieve a proper meritocracy, but we should strive to. It's one of those things you strive for, but we will always only ever have a partial and limited meritocracy because in free societies, parents can hand on their advantages to their children. I mean, it's as simple as that, really. And you can lean against that in certain ways, but there are limits on how far you can lean in a free society. But what we can do 
is actually give hand and heart. So it's about sort of spreading the prestige attached to meritocracy to these other things. And I mean, this is the one of the things that I think my book and Madeleine Bunting's book have in common is, you know, looking at things like, you know, how do you actually measure care? How do you sort of differentiate one care from another? I mean, if you ask an economist, you know, why is it that people in adult social care are so badly paid? They will say because anyone can do it. We know that that's not true. What they mean is you don't need any academic qualifications to do. They're judging it by its kind of cognitive creep. They're judging it by academic standards. But, you know, you spend five minutes in a hospital or an old people's home and you, know, you can see there are good carers, there are okay carers, and there are crap carers, <laughs> like in every walk of life. But we don't tend to differentiate that because it's harder to do it. You know, one of the reasons why the cognitive meritocracy has swept all before it is because it seems to be easy to measure. And, uh, you know, we need to apply some of that kind of measurement that sort of measurability to some of these other areas of life i mean it's a kind of fascinating question of that sense that and you talk about it in the book about kind of iq tests and how we've developed this kind of belief that we can very robustly measure people's kind of cognitive abilities but we find it much more difficult to measure other things and i don't think you're advocating that we want to go around measuring everything but you're but you're saying that that makes it more difficult to provide status to it. final question david I know because I follow you on Twitter that, you know, you, you quote Jordan Peterson in the book. You retweeted a Sam Harris podcast the other day. So I, I kind of tend to think that you are somebody who would probably associate themselves to a certain extent with a group of people who might rather rudely be called kind of enlightenment fundamentalists, you know, defending the Western enlightenment from the assaults on it. Uh, for example, from those who want to decolonize the curriculum or whatever. But yeah, I couldn't help feeling that kind of poking out from under the hem of this argument that you've developed in this book, there is a bit of an enlightenment critique going on here, David, because after all, that's when we saw the enthroning of reason. I mean, I think I've become much more interested in the kind of emotional drivers. I mean, that was true of my last book, too. And this is part of the critique of contemporary liberalism is that it's all those things that liberalism leaves out, you know, the emotional stuff, the belonging, the the wanting to contribute, you know, the meaning, you know, meaningful lives. I mean, liberalism doesn't go there. And yet, you know, we as human beings need to talk about all that stuff, too. I mean, like, you know, I've been quite influenced by Ian McGilchrist, you know, the master and his emissary and and all that sort of stuff. But equally, I think one has to be hard-headed too about these things. I mean, one of the things that it's very difficult for, you know, modern liberals, you know, egalitarians to kind of recognise that there is a deep tension. And this is you know, a point that Nietzsche made in his, you know, his whole theory of resentiment, that there is this great deep tension also in human society, and perhaps particularly in the modern age, since we have enthroned the historic idea of democracy and indeed the Christian idea of the equality of all human beings, the moral, political, legal equality of all human beings, has to live in combination with the reality of a huge variation of human ability. And this is, you know, how we can manage that tension is almost at the heart of, of politics in a way. And, and there are periods when we manage it less well. And I think we've been kind of living through one at the moment where, where the resentment has built up. And I mean, I guess one of the things I'm saying is that the people who are claiming, as it were, that they are the sort of super able are not, in fact, in most cases, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, there are the super able people who, you know, create a new knowledge and are going to, you know, are going to save our species. <laughs> but but 99.999% of us are not that. But we've sort of shoved so much status in the direction 
of, sort of the cognitive class that I think a perfectly legitimate resentment has built up against that. And we need to burst that bubble. Well, David, thank you so much. When you first came on the line to do the podcast, I was printing in the background. You, you commented on the noise. What I was printing was the final draft of a book about work, short, very short book about work that I've just completed. And I rang my publisher on Friday and said, look, I've read David Goodhart's book, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to do a little bit more work on my book because there's so much in there that I want to kind of add it sweet. to it. So what bigger compliment can be paid to your particular brand of hard-headed post-liberalism, David? I can strongly recommend your book, and thank you so much for joining me today. My heart is swelling with pride. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith. <laughs>